Well, good morning. So my name is Pastor Kevin Ritter, and uh, I pastor Chillicothe Baptist Church, and uh, Pastor Greg uh, reached out to me and wanted to know if I would just uh, abandon my church on a Sunday morning and come here, and I said, I'm just kidding. Um, actually, it so happened that um, I was, uh, my family and I had taken a vacation week, and uh, the circumstances worked out where I could come in and fill in for Pastor Greg while he and the elders are away uh, for um, their counseling training there, Christian counseling training there in Virginia. So I'm very grateful to be here, and just in case you, um, you have, this is the first time you're hearing me, um, Greg and I go back many years uh, ago, um, about 27 years ago. In fact, we kind of grew up in the same group, circle of churches, and so, um, and, and then we preached together at different little conferences and stuff around and then uh, he was brave enough to hire me when I got to college, and he introduced to me to my wife, which is his niece, um, on Tony's side, his niece, and so he takes credit for um, basically my whole life, basically, anyway. <laughs> so we just celebrated 25 years of marriage, and I told, text Greg and said, hey, thank you again uh, for these 25 years that I've shared with Christy. Without you, that wouldn't have been possible. Just kidding, but anyway. <laughs> Um, but uh, we're very grateful for uh, Greg's ministry, for our friendship and fellowship, and um, over, uh, over the many years uh, as I've been pastoring, and uh, I'm, I'm grateful for our friendship, for the way that God brought us together, even in family and, uh, and extended family, and then also the way we've been able, especially in recent years, been able to kind of share ministries. Uh, we love having him come out and speak for us and preach for us. And I've been at Chillicothe Baptist for a year now, and the Lord's just been so good and gracious there. And they love having Greg and others come out and preach. We share common doctrine, common commitment to the gospel. And so with all of that said, I'm very grateful that my family and I could be here with you this morning. And so before we go into the message, please bow with me and let's just pray. And then we'll get right into the text this morning. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we just thank you for uh, the privilege it is to gather here. Thank you that we are able to exhort one another, encourage one another in the truths of the gospel as we see the day approaching where we will be in your presence forever. And so I pray, Lord, that as much as we're encouraged that now our hearts will be ready to receive your word. And if there's anyone here today that has not been that made, has, is not at peace with you, has not put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, that you will use your word and the power of the Holy Spirit to open their eyes to the wonder and glory of the gospel. And may we as believers be humbled by what we read here today. May we grow uh, in a humility that is produced only by the realization that without your mercy, we would all perish. And help us to repent of those areas of pride and, and self-righteousness that sometime, sometimes just uh, sprout up in our hearts. And help us to put those things to death as we think about just the, the joy it is that you have declared over us that, we are, that by faith alone in Christ alone, we are justified. And so, Lord, may you empower me to preach your word. And may the word be clearly made known, and may Christ be exalted, and may you continue to put your hand upon this church, to bless this church, and may they continue to be faithful 
to the truth and to the gospel in which they stand, in which, by which we are saved. And uh, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, I want to turn our attention to the passage that was just read in Luke chapter 18. And the title of the message this morning is A Sinner Justified. And um, to begin, let me just ask this question. And uh, maybe you've given it some thought, but what is the most important question that a person could ask? What's the most important question about the kingdom of God that a person could ask. And I, and I think sometimes when we think about that, we, we, we might go in different directions. We might think, well, you know, well, the most pressing question is something going on in my life personally. Or we might think, well, the most pressing question is something that has to do with the political uh, realm or, you know, the government or something of that nature. Or, or, or maybe we think that the most pressing question uh, is, is just something that's trivial and trite. But I think the Bible gives us what's the most, what the most important question that we could entertain is. And in Job, the writer says, how can a man be right with God? Or how can a person be made right before God? How can he who is born of woman be pure? And that question is a significant question. And it's also given expression in Psalm 130, verse 3, where the psalmist writes, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord... Who could stand? And so the question that is of most importance, whether we really see it or not, is how can I be right with God? Or how can I be justified? How can I be in a right standing before God? And any honest person that knows their own failures and their own flaws and their own sins would stand with the psalmist to say, wow, I mean, if, if Lord, if you marked my iniquities, how could I stand before you? And I think it's also a pressing question because those of us who are believers here this morning, we know that 500 years ago, that question was at the heart of the Protestant Reformation as Martin Luther earnestly sought to have a right relationship with God, but only discovered the more he worked and the more he tried and the more he put his confidence in his his performance and his religious rituals, the more guilt he experienced. And I would argue that today it is of utmost importance because most people, think about it, if we're honest, most people think that the answer to how a person can be right with God, or if a person doesn't even believe in God and they just say, well, how can I be at peace? How can I experience some form of happiness in life? Most people would say that the answer is just be a good person, to behave to keep the rules. And, and, and really, whether a person is religious or secular, there are all sorts of codes and commandments that people live trying to keep. I mean, just to think about, I mean, we could easily look at the religious world and say, oh, oh yeah, we see that all around us in, 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 in religious realms or the practices of various religions. But even secular people follow all sorts of codes and commandments and, and they're trying to be good. Even though people may not put a, have even a belief in God, they still think that what they're trying to pursue is to have some stability in life. They're trying to keep up to some code that they have formed or that's been imposed upon them. And I think that's because the instinct of every person's heart is the notion of self-righteous goodness. And, and, and again, even if it's 
even if that notion is, is not religious in the sense that, well, if I'm good and then I can, I can get out of hell, it is, in most people's mind, the key to their own personal happiness. Albert Moeller, who's president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, he observes this, that the majority of people prescribe to a form of moralism, a salvation that comes by behaving, and they convince themselves that they can trust in their behavior. Now, I lay all that before us to show us how pressing that is. Because in this parable that we just read, our Lord Jesus tells a story that authoritatively teaches how sinners may become right with God, how they are justified. And, and, and in light of that, Jesus, whenever he taught parables, it really, I, I like to say this, he's the king who came, and in his earthly ministry, he taught about the kingdom of God, how people could enter the kingdom of God. And so in this case, he's teaching how people can be justified. Justification by faith alone is not simply a topic of the Reformation or a theme that we would go to the writings of the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and see, oh yeah, justification is a theme of Paul. But justification is at the very heart of the gospel. And here, Jesus shows that God pardons sinners and makes them righteous. And even while he shows that God justifies sinners through this tax collector, he shatters all forms of moralistic, self-righteous religion by revealing out of the gate the danger of self-righteousness. Look at verse 9 of the text, and it'll be up on the screen as well. But verse 9 says, He also told this parable, listen to this, to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So this is one of the very few parables where Jesus actually, where the text actually just tells you why Jesus told the parable. So he tells the parable not only to show how sinners are justified, but he tells the parable in order to, in order to teach or to address people who consider themselves righteous. And what you see there introductorily is, the, is, is, a, is an, a, a, an example, or I should say the qualities of self-righteousness. Here are two qualities of self-righteousness. Notice in verse 9, just pay attention to this. First, they trust in themselves with confidence. Do you see it? They trust it in themselves. They possess a delusional and damning self-confidence in their own morality and their religious performance. And that being, that's being told even today in the, in the larger world, right? Just trust your heart. Just look into yourself. Just look within. Just, just follow your instinct. I mean, that, that is embedded again, as I said a moment ago, that's just embedded in human nature. This self-justifying, self-righteous notion that we can save ourselves. So they trust in self with confidence. And the other mark of self-righteousness is treating others with contempt. That's what the text says. That's, that's what the text says. That the self-righteous despise others. They consider other people worthless. And, that, and they possess a disdain toward others that they consider inferior. That's what the word contempt means. It means to treat others 
as worthless, to look down upon them. And so people that have these qualities, or that these Pharisees specifically, who are self-righteous, that's who Jesus is addressing. And the key kingdom truth that you walk away with from this parable can be summarized like this. God justifies guilty sinners. I could stop right there, but I'll just take us all the way to the the end where the sermon's going to conclude. God justifies guilty sinners who look to Christ and not to themselves for salvation. That's what Jesus wants not only the Pharisees to hear, but that's what He wants to echo into the very heart of the disciples ringing all the way to us today. God justifies sinners who do not look to themselves, but look to Christ alone for salvation. And the way that we're going to unpack this in the parable is under three headings. The first thing that I want you to consider is the profile of the two men in this parable. And then the second thing that I want you to examine with me is the prayer by these two men. And then the last thing I want us to observe is the pronouncement to these men. So let's look at the profile, the prayer, and then the pronouncement and see how this key kingdom truth is clearly the point of this wonderful parable that our Lord tells about a sinner justified. So first, the profile of the men. Verse 10, the text says, two men, this is Jesus now telling the story, two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. So he intentionally wants the audience to get in view this religious Pharisee and this tax collector. So let's consider a self-righteous Pharisee first for just a minute. A Pharisee, goes to the temple, usually they would go to the temple at the set times for prayer. Either 9 a.m., mid-morning, or 3 p.m. in mid-afternoon. And so the audience listening to this wouldn't be surprised by that. So Pharisees, they were the prominent religious leaders in Jesus' day. And they would be very observable in Jerusalem. You would notice them by their dress, you would notice them by by their behavior, by their very appearance, you would notice them. And so it would have been a normal thing for a Pharisee to go up to the temple to worship and pray. That's what righteous, devout people do. And not only that, Pharisees love to be heard and to be seen for their religious duties. Jesus talks about that in the Sermon on the Mount. And and, and let's just be, I'm going to be a little kind to the Pharisees, okay? Though they they, they were committed in some sense to the Scriptures, but they went way off track. They were committed to the Scriptures and they were seeking to obey God, but they were fundamentally flawed. The text alludes to that. Because why? They trusted in their own righteousness, their performance for salvation. And that's why they hated Jesus. Because Jesus was constantly calling them and those that listened to Him to not look to themselves for salvation, but to look to Him. Think about Luke 16 where Jesus addresses the Pharisees and He says this, you, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your heart. They're the kind of people that went around and say, well, you know, God knows my heart. You ever heard people say that? As if that's a good thing. (laughs) Right? Yeah? I I mean, I know my heart and it's not good. 
Like I, I don't want, I wouldn't want to put up here every thought, every word, I mean every everything, every motive that I've ever had in my heart, even in the course of a day, let alone to use that as a self-justifying mechanism. And so Jesus says, but God knows your heart. And what he means by that, it's not good because it's a whitewashed tomb, he goes on to say. And so that's the profile of the Pharisee. Religiously, outwardly religious, but inwardly self-righteous. And so, but again, he goes up to the temple and prays. See, it's pray and worship. But notice in verse 10, that the tax collectors mentioned. Now, this would have been, again, you got to think of Jesus telling the parable, the story. And so there's always something in the parable that draws people to say, that, that suddenly catches their attention. And so in verse, 10 it sa- in verse 10, it says, two men went up, a Pharisee and the other a tax collector, and immediately the audience would listen in. They would lean in. What, a tax collector? So we have a sinful tax collector in the second profile we want to consider. A tax collector makes his way to the temple. And the reason the audience would have been interested in this is because tax collectors were exceptionally hated. I mean, not just by the religious people, but just the, I mean, they were considered a traitor of their own country. Traitors and thieves that usually would have their own side business. And so while they would collect taxes, they would raise the interest so that they could take, they could take the, what was on top for themselves and fill their bank accounts. And every time a tax collector is mentioned in the New Testament, generally, especially in the Gospels, they're usually mentioned in the same category as prostitutes and drunkards and sinners. Just go through the Gospels and you'll see it. They were considered the most morally debased, ethically dishonest, and they were looked upon as utterly redeemable. Follow what Jesus is doing? So the minute he says, the tax collector, all ears are like listening. That guy went up to the temple and prayed? That greedy businessman who prays upon others? It was the belief of the Jews, particularly the Jewish religious leaders, that tax collectors had no business in the temple. A sanctuary of holiness. They were banned from synagogues. They were allowed to go to the temple, and usually they stayed in the outer court. They had, they had access to the outer court of the temple, but they were not welcome anywhere else. And so it would have been shocking for a tax collector to be in the midst of the worshipers praying. Now, do you get the reason why the profile is so important? Jesus takes two characters and he juxtaposes them to each other. He wants you to get the contrast one person is, deep, is considered deeply devout and supremely spiritual. The other is looked upon as a wretch, an outcast, a criminal. Both made their way to the temple. Now here's the thought going in the, in the audience's mind. So I, which, which one makes it to heaven? Which one will be right with God? Which, why does Jesus bring up the tax collector and what it forces upon us as the reader and the audience as the listeners is to ask ourselves this kingdom question. What's this profile say about me? Hmm, am I a tax collector? Am I a Pharisee? And so why does Jesus bring these two? Because he wants us to evaluate ourselves. 
He wants the Pharisees that are listening to him to do an evaluation of any, any, any potential self-righteousness that is there, which is not potential, it's glaring. And he wants anyone that hears him to consider, is there hope for a Pharisee? Is there hope for a sinner? That leads us to the second observation. So we've got the profile here. Let's look at the second thing, the prayer by the men. So notice here in verse 11. So the first prayer, just like the profile, the first one's mentioned the Pharisee. So look at verse 11 and pay close attention to the wording here. The Pharisee standing by himself. Now you've got to get that. Prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even, remember what I told you, like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Now, the, the first thing I want you to see right here, and if you have a Bible in front of you, just underline standing by himself. So notice, notice that he stands alone or he stands apart he isolates himself. Why would he do that? Well, he's a Pharisee, and he wants to be seen. He, he puts himself in a position of self-assurance and self-promotion. He stands apart from all others to be seen by the other worshipers whom he considers to be unworthy. It is an intentional positioning of himself, and that's why Jesus emphasizes it. Standing by himself apart above and so then notice as well this is interesting that he prays now i want to make one really just quick observation that in the esv it says standing by himself but the legacy standard bible um, which is cousin of the new american standard bible the new american standard translate this translates it this way standing apart that he uh, this that he stood and was praying these things to himself so standing by himself prayed thus the the lsb says that he was praying these things to himself see what's going on jesus is giving a commentary here he's praying to himself even though he says god he's praying to himself Matthew Henry says that the man went to pray, but he forgot his errand. It is no prayer. It is an announcement and an assessment about himself to God. He is giving his own acceptance speech before God. You know how you know that? Just look at your Bible. Five eyes. Start, underline them. I believe it's five times that he says I. I thank you. I am not like other men. I fast twice a week. I give tithes. Four eyes. Four. It is his own self, his own acceptance speech before God. He mentions God and then he monologues about himself. The Pharisee is clearly impressed by the sins that he avoids and the works that he achieves. And he believes God should be as well. Now you've got to get this. He demonstrates no awareness of God's grace. No awareness of God's holiness. No awareness of a need for the fear of God. 
or his need for mercy. Any man that would pose himself to be religious, but in no need of forgiveness or mercy, has completely missed salvation entirely. And you see this in two things in his prayer. Look, look at his prayer. The first thing in his prayer is he compares himself in a superiority. Just look at the text. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. And then he calls out the sin. You know the big sins. The big cultural sins for them. The extortioners. The, the adulterers. The unjust. Or even like the guy that's at the bottom of the barrel. The tax collector. God, I thank you that I'm not like these men. He sees his spiritual condition as secure and superior compared to others. Really, the Pharisee is indicating that God should be thanking him. Aren't you glad I'm here? I mean, that's what he's, you know, God, I mean, you should give me a round of applause, is what he's thinking compared to all these others who are so inferior. But listen, listen, friend, his, his comparison is delusional because what is missing, again, no sense of inherent sin, no sin understanding of his inward corruption, of his incredible, complete depravity. He is deceived by his moral superiority. Now let me ask you a question. Who do you compare yourself to? Who in your heart would you say, man, I'm so glad I'm not like... Which, what, what sin would suddenly flood, fill in the blank there? See how, see how subtle this is for us? And, and then we tend to think that that makes us superior to others, morally upright, acceptable before God, as if somehow that's, our sta that's the basis of our standing. But listen, friend, we are all sinful. We are all corrupt. We are all self-righteous. You know, the reality is, we all have that pharisaical tendency in us, if we're honest. But you know the truth? In our sinful condition before God, you and I are no different than the meth addict, the sexually deviant, or the serial killer for that matter. And that's stunned. Because we live in a culture that would say, no, 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 wait a minute. Now, I'm not talking about the severity of specific sins. I'm not talking about the consequence and outcome. I'm talking about our righteous standing before a holy God. The Scripture is utterly clear that we have all sinned. There are none righteous, no, not one. We all fall short of the glory of God. So, it's foolish to compare ourselves in superiority. But that religious tendency does that. But look at the second thing. The, the second thing that you see is that he credits himself with spirituality. It's not just that he compares himself, he credits himself. He moves from morality to merit. What he achieves. I fast twice a week. Now, let me just make this comment about fasting. Fasting is to be it was to be commended. Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. He told His disciples to fast. He instructed on what that looks like. But the law required, in terms of the Jewish law, one public day of fasting a year on Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement. And anything beyond that would have been voluntary. The Pharisees then institute additional days, right? They went beyond the law. That's the problem. Why did they go beyond the wall, preacher? Because they wanted to demonstrate themselves 
as completely morally superior and to credit themselves with higher spirituality. Right? So you fast once a week? Good, I fast twice. Mic drop. End of conversation. (laughs) That's how they were. The more they did, the more righteous they thought they could be. Oh, and when it came to tithing, because look what it says. It says also, I I give tithes of all that I get. Right? Forget that widow and her measly offering. I give of, not only do I make tons more, but I give on all of it. So again, they tithed on everything, not just what was required. So, I mean, think about this. If they, got a, if they got $10 in a birthday card, well, they were tithing on that. And they wanted everyone to hear that dime echo throughout the court. You see, when you really look at that, that's the exhaustion of religion. Do more. Do more than God requires. Do more than everyone else. And God will be impressed. It's like the kid that I was the school teacher and for those of you school teachers, right, it's like that the kid, they have 100%. Like they turn everything in and then they do more. And they have 100%. And it's usually, it's always that kid that comes up to my, come up to my desk and say, Mr. Ritter, what can I do for extra credit? <laughs> Nothing. Because <laughs> it doesn't matter if he's 100% or 110%. It doesn't matter. But it is driven by, right? I mean, it's just driven by this, not, not necessarily me impressed, but wanting to try to work, to earn more, to earn more, to earn more. It's easy to observe the self-righteous Pharisee. It's easy to look at the Pharisee with disdain. But again, Albert Moeller notes that there is a little Pharisee inside all of us, always tempting us to compare ourselves and credit ourselves. How often do we think that God must be super impressed with us and how righteous we must be based on how much we serve or how much we give or how much we do or how little we sin or how spiritual we are and so marks our tendency to look to ourselves and not to God who is our only hope and salvation. None of those things, all of those things would be good things, but none of those things should ever be counted in the credit of salvation or used as a means to compare to other people to think ourselves is spiritually superior to others. But that's the problem with the Pharisee's prayer. So you have the Pharisee and his prayer, his assessment, his announcement, but I want you to look Secondly, at the tax collector, his posture and his plea. Look at verse 13. But the tax collector, standing far off. Now see, there's parallelism there. So, so remember, Jesus says that, the, he says that the Pharisee was standing by himself. Same structure in the grammar on verse 13. But the tax collector was standing far off. And he wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The tax collector stands afar. He does not see himself as worthy like the Pharisee. Because he knows himself and his sin, and he knows what he has done. He knows the depth of deception and thievery and even treason in his own heart, not just against men, but against God. 
His posture shows that he is ashamed of his sin in such a way, aware of his guilt in such a way, that he distanced himself, almost symbolically displaying that he gets it. He is alienated from God as all sinners are apart from his mercy. And it's from that place afar that he prays. And isn't it interesting that the Pharisee who thought he was near is ignored, at least his prayer. And the sinner who is afar is heard. I mean, is that astounding to you? And in true remorse, and I mean, if you want to really get it here, in repentance, I mean, it's, it's visibly displayed. And Jesus is showing you the, the humble position. He offers no comparisons. He extends no excuses. He presents no explanations. And he will not wallow in any self-pity. Instead, he will acknowledge his guilt before a holy God. And that is where salvation begins. He bowed his head. Three things he did, just quickly. He bowed his head. He wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven. I say salvation begins. What I mean by that is, is that that's the evidence that salvation is at work in his heart. He bowed his head. He would not even lift his eyes to, toward the God who sits high upon the throne of heaven. He is not cavalier, nor is he presumptuous as he speaks. And he would dare not approach God in a flippant and foolish way as we see the Pharisee. And he beats his chest. He beats his chest. you know what that is? That's the universal gesture of sorrow and remorse. And here's what's interesting. The tense of the verb, as you look at it, he beat his chest. It is, it is a continuous action. He continued to beat his chest, not, because, not only because he's sorry, but because he's sorrowful over his sinfulness. He knows that the problem is not just his behavior, but it's his heart. Interesting, Mark 7. Just, I mean, not, I'm not saying that that's the intended symbolism, but Mark 7 says that from within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within and they defile a person. That's why it's foolish to look within and trust yourself. So he bows his head, he beat his chest, and then he begged for mercy. And, 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 and notice the long-winded prayer, to some degree, of the, of the Pharisee. And the short statement or plea of the sinner. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Now, I'll explain that in just a second. But in the Greek, the word mercy is heloskotai moi. And what it literally can be translated in English, it could say not just mercy, but it, it actually means be propitious to me. In other words, God, atone for me because I cannot atone for myself. You, you follow the logic here? He knows that he cannot atone for sin. 
And he seeks God to do whatever is necessary to satisfy the law's requirement for sin. And in doing so, he pleads, God, forgive me, pardon me, receive me on the basis of the atonement that only you can provide. Isn't it interesting that Jesus Christ is the one telling this parable who would go to the cross and be the atonement for sinners? And check it out. The Greek has the definite article. Our translations say, be merciful to me, a sinner. But do you know what he's saying? Be, be atoned for me, the sinner. The article's there. Literal translation would read, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And, and, and compare that, contrast that to the Pharisee where he compares himself to all the terrible sinners. And here's what's going on here. When the Pharisee sees everyone else in the crowd, the tax collector can only see himself. The, ta the Pharisee sees everybody else in the crowd. The, the tax collector can only see himself. And he has only one thing to say about himself. Not I tithe, not I give, not I, I attend, not I do this, not I do that. Be merciful. Here's, here's his self-evaluation. I am the sinner. Not just a sinner. I am the sinner. I am the worst of sinners. I am the vilest of sinners. I am guilty. No one worse than me. No one to compare myself to. And no one who needs mercy more than me. What a beautiful picture of the heart of the contrite sinner receiving salvation. So let me ask you this question here today. Do you see yourself the sinner? Not a sinner who's done some bad things, but that in your heart that you are a sin-loving, God-hating, hell-deserving sinner. You know why that's so important? You know why that's so important? Because, because the gospel is not God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That's not the gospel. The gospel is you and I are guilty sinners before a holy God and we need a sin-conquering, hell-defeating Savior and God has sent Him into the world to save us and His name is Jesus and God is merciful to sinners through Jesus Christ. So do you look to God for mercy at the cross? You don't need a pass on sin. We need a provision for sin. We need an atonement. We need a sacrifice, and that has come at the cross where Jesus died to pay for our sins, at the cross where God poured justice on Christ and grants mercy and grace to any sinner who will look to Him for atonement and salvation. Nothing can for sin atone. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Not of good that I have done. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And that is our standing before God in His mercy. So that leads us to, the, as, we, as we think about then the prayer here by these men, let me ask you this question. Do you stand alone trusting yourself or do you stand afar pleading mercy? Which one? Which one? If you're here today and you've never been saved, never been born again, you've never experienced salvation, you can't stand alone trusting yourself. You must stand pleading for mercy from God. And for us as believers today, let us be reminded that our only plea is to a God 
to be merciful to us through His Son, Jesus Christ. Let me look at the last. Let's close this. Verse 14. I tell you. I tell you. Now, you see that? Jesus says, I tell you. You know why He says, I tell you? Because He's speaking with divine authority. This man went down to his house justified rather than the others. And the reason he says it that way is because the, the Pharisees are, well, if you ask the Pharisees, who do you think was justified? Well, they would have said, well, the Pharisee clearly. But what Jesus is doing, he is turning religion on its head, and he is saying, I tell you, this is how people are justified before God. And the conclusion is astonishing. Again, we, we lose that right in our audience. In, in our, as we read it, we may not, not lose it, but we may not clearly see it. To the, audi- to the original audience, this would have been astounding for Jesus to say this. I, I would assure you that there were gasps as he said this. I tell you that this man, this sinner, this tax collector went home to his, ha- went to his house justified rather than the other referring to the Pharisee. The sinner was justified and not condemned. The tax collector went home forgiven of all the sin and right with God. God justifies sinners. The audience gasps. And here's just three quick things that you need to mark about what it means to be justified. First, he was declared justified. Justification is a declaration, an act of God alone, of a sinner being pardoned of his sin and made righteous before God. That's what justification is. I mean, you, you read the confessions. I mean, that's just a standard. And again, the confession is coming out of Galatians chapter two, uh, Galatians 2 and Galatians 3 and Romans 3 and Romans 5, as you all have been studying. And I want you to see it. It's the Son of God here that says this. And when he says, I tell you, this man went home justified, he drives a nail through self-righteous religion with that authoritative statement. And he says, I'm the one that defines the terms of salvation, not you and religion. This man went home forgiven, pardoned of all of his sins. Now, the second thing is he was imputed righteousness. Because here's the objection. Are you ready? Are you ready for the objection? But the tax collector has no righteousness of his own. I mean, he didn't, he didn't speak any. And his record is completely terrible. Exactly. Because justification means that only God forgives sinners, but he provides righteousness. The gospel assures us that the God who justifies sinners because of Christ imputes the righteousness of Jesus to sinners. Justification is not just a past declaration. It is a present possession of righteous standing before God. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 says this, For our sake, for our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. And so the tax collector is not only declared justified, forgiven, imputed righteousness, but lastly, he receives this by faith alone. And here's what I want you to get. And that that summarizes, in some sense, the doctrine of justification in a very simplistic way. But my point is, Jesus teaches it. And so listen, the astonishing reality is that the tax collector left justified, hear me, without performing a single 
act of obedience. None. Right? And immediately, you know, all the time, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. But what, the question is not what happens after. I get what happens after. Right? Faith, faith is, uh, by grace, faith is, it's faith alone and Christ alone, but faith comes not alone because it brings works, it produces works. But the point is, is that when it comes to specifically our, our pardon of sin and our, the, impart, the, the imputing of righteousness, the sinner does no act of obedience to earn that. He didn't pray, be merciful to me, sinner, a trying sinner. He didn't pray, be merciful to me, a reforming sinner. He doesn't say, hey, be merciful to me, God. I'm a cleaning up my act, sinner, and I promise I'll do better. That's not the basis of salvation. And people that make that can't keep that promise anyway. He doesn't come and say, well, you know, be merciful to me, a baptized sinner. He just says, be merciful to me, the sinner. He has nothing to justify himself, nothing. And that's why sinners are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. That's how sinners are justified. Not by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ alone. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 15 and 16. And the reason that is the case is because, again, the same Jesus that speaks this parable and, the, and all the people there that would have been, all the Pharisees have been just frustrated by the fact that he teaches this. On what basis can Jesus say this? Because he will go to the cross, atone for sin, be condemned for sinners, rise again from the dead, ascend into heaven to make a new and living a way so that sinners can come to God, cry for mercy, and actually receive it. Isn't that what it says? He went home justified. Not maybe a little justified, fully justified. That's how complete our salvation is. If you are in Christ, your sins are forgiven. You are made righteous completely before God because of what Christ has done. And that's the joy of the gospel. You know what that does? That means that he went home with assurance. Assurance. And that's what this doctrine gives to you, is assurance. Because if he doesn't have that, then what, not only assurance, but joy. I'm forgiven. I am righteous. Of no righteousness of my own. Of no work of my own. But I am forgiven because Christ died for me. I am forgiven because He's been raised from the dead. And His righteousness, His perfect life, His sinless life has been credited to me. And my sins were credited to Him on the cross. And they have been removed so that I have received mercy and grace from God. That's why it's possible. And that's why Romans 5 verse 1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I can just see that tax collector making his way home filled with assurance, filled with peace, and full of joy because he had been justified. But there's just one other little observation you can't miss. The other was not. Boy, there's a sermon in that, isn't there? All the religion, all of the morality, all of the works, 
counted for nothing. And in the end, the religious person who would trust in his own righteousness to save him will go to hell, will perish. That's the stunning point at the end. The Pharisees, as stinging as that would have been, Jesus tells this because there's still room for that Pharisee to say, me too. I'm a wretch. I'm a sinner. It doesn't matter if you've been raised in church your whole life. It doesn't matter if you've never, been a, you've never been drunk and you've never participated in immorality and all the other things that we tend... Listen, we are all sinners in need of the mercy of God. And so the great reversal leads to the divine conclusion. Last verse, and this is the closing. For everyone who exalts himself will be humble. Eternally humble. Condemnation. To exalt oneself in self-righteousness is to be humbled in judgment. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The one who stands afar, who thinks that there's no way God could ever forgive me, that person who will bow his head, who will beat his chest, and beg for God to show mercy on the basis of Jesus Christ, that person will be saved and will be exalted, will be forgiven, and will be restored to the living God. How incredible is that? I'm going to be honest with you. When I think about that for myself, if God had not justified me based on the finished work of Jesus Christ, I tell you right now, I would most certainly go to hell. There is no goodness, no morality, no religious work that can ever make anyone acceptable before God or remove the guilt of sin. Our only plea is God be merciful to me, a sinner. And the good news of the gospel is that God grants mercy to all who will look to Christ and not to themselves for salvation. So today, have you been justified? Will you leave here justified this morning? Maybe you are. Maybe you're saved. And you say, you know what? Yeah, I will. And I, man, I'm so filled with, you're today just filled with more joy and more assurance because of the truth of Jesus' parable. And maybe you're here today and you need to say, God, I cry out for mercy. If you're here today and you're not a believer and you say, God, I'll be merciful. I, I've never thought of this. I, I can't trust in myself. God will be merciful to you. But even us as believers, let's cry out to God and say, God, forgive us. Oh, God, cleanse those self-righteous tendencies on our hearts. Humble us again before the gospel. Spurgeon said this, The man who has cried from his heart, God be merciful to me, a sinner, is a justified man. When he stood and confessed his sin and cast him wholly upon the divine mercy, that man was unburdened, so that he went down to his house justified. We are all going down to our houses. Oh, that we might go down justified. But before we leave here to go to our houses, believers will have an opportunity to celebrate our justification by observing the Lord's Supper.